welcome to this episode of the Club and Country Podcast. Wes Bowling and Tim Sullivan with you as always. We are pleased to talk with Nashville SC General Manager Mike Jacobs. Mike, if I take an international flight, does that mean I have to pay you for it since it's international? 250k in GAM, I think. Is that what's going to cost me? Is that how that works? Wish we give you the friends and family discount. You know, like, uh, you know, for 245k, you know, uh, take care of your flight for you. Perfect. We want to talk all things off-season with you and also look back on 2021 and what it meant for you. You were the first guest ever on this podcast, so only fitting that we'd have you on to to recap what was a special season for Nashville SC. But let's start with the, the most recent news. Here in the past week, week and a half, Nashville was the busiest team in last Sunday's half-day trade window how do the trades you made, those, those four international slots for the 100K for, for a million in game, plus getting Teal Bunbury, getting Ethan Zubek, how do those trades prepare you now for the rest of the offseason? One of our keys when we start working towards the 22 season, like the next season that year, is to try to, you know, lack of better terms, maybe kind of like weaponize our roster. Uh, to put ourselves in a situation where at some point Gary's going to come to us and say, you know, I need X. And when that time comes, we're ready to bounce from the standpoint of having roster spots, allocation money, depending on where they come from, international spots. You know, so I, I think we feel pretty good about the fact that we've put our roster in the best position to succeed, not only to be competitive this past season, but to give us now the opportunity to attack what comes next. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of fans understand, you know, they made this trade with whichever team, whether that's uh, with Charlotte FC a couple of times or, or any of the other clubs that you've dealt with over the time. But I guess like mechanically, like how do you kind of come to these deals with opposing GMs? You just send them a text and say, hey, you know, I've got this international slot if you have any interest in it. How does that happen in terms of the communication and to get to the point of actually making a trade? I think it's funny about Sunday with the half day window open, the number of people I, I either reached out to me, uh, friends who I saw, you know, who would say, oh, you've had a busy day today. You know, and, you know, I was referenced, I mean, like, you know, that those transactions happened, you know, a month or two months ago, you know, it's just, you know, the window opened that day. So Mm -hmm. I I think that there certainly could be deals that happen that day. Uh, I would say if teams are trying to acquire players during the window that they probably are late or probably didn't do their due diligence prior. So, um, you know, for us, when you look at maybe what our goals were, it, you know, even though maybe we did some of these transactions a month or two ago, you know, this plan was, you know, probably almost a, a year in the making as far mm-hmm. as, you know, how far ahead we were looking at what assets we have in our roster, as far as maybe, you know, what our strengths were, what areas we might need to try to freshen up, uh, looking at maybe roles that might have players coming in or need to bring in versus players who are leaving. And, you know, I think for us, it helped kind of create a North star for, not only what kind of players we're looking for, but, you know, how to accomplish acquiring them. And, you know, the idea about international spots and as people looking at, you know, externally looking in at the idea of, you know, purchasing or acquiring international spots, the idea of allocation money, you know, every sport's different as far as what assets are most valued. And, uh, you know, whether it's the NFL or the NBA, you think about the acquiring draft picks in those sports, you know, our sport allocation money is everything. So uh, it's not that we don't value international spots as much as the fact that maybe we don't spend as much in the transfer market, which regardless of what the Players Association produces as far as wages, you know, really, I mean, transfers is where money is spent on clubs' budgets. 
you know, for us, we have to be creative and find ways to maximize our roster. And, you know, if, if we don't spend at the level of the highest spenders in our league, being able to acquire more allocation money to either acquire players within the league, almost like domestic transfers or trades, mm-hmm. uh, or looking at a roster we currently have. And, you know, the allocation money allows you to do it, it allows you to stretch out your cap because, you know, it, it's the cap that every team has, which is the exact same, plus it's your DP spend, plus it's your allocation money you have, you know? So for us, but being able to acquire more allocation money allows us the opportunity to one fit in higher wages for the current players we have. And one of our goals was to, once we spent these last two years identifying and you know developing this key core, we have that was a touch away from an Eastern conference final, you know, then it was trying to solidify and keep those guys, uh, you know, so, you know, once we knew we had to do that, then it's, you know, how do we, how do we make sure we have the resource to allow us to do that? And that's what you know, having the kind of allocation money we've acquired allowed us to do. Mm-hmm. And when you do have that, and obviously you used a little bit of that allocation money, for example, to acquire Teal, um, how, does that, how does that conversation go with him or with his representation? Do you say, hey, um, you know, I've, I've talked to Bruce Arena, we're, we're going to make a trade for you? Or, does, or how does that kind of conversation go with a player when you acquire them or with the players currently on your roster? As you mentioned, you extended a few guys this offseason already. How do those conversations come about? Well, when you're acquiring players, I mean, they're the property of another club, right? So, so mm-hmm. the conversations take place between the, the stakeholders of the two clubs. So, uh, you know, from our standpoint, you know, I had spoken to Bruce Arena, who's both coach and general manager in New England, you know, multiple occasions long before our trade was executed. I was able to talk to Teal, Uh, you know, from the standpoint of the player, you know, know, part of it, part of going into it is having a level of understanding, you know, in most cases from the other team's general manager, the player be open to a move, be willing to come to our market. And, you know, I think what happens a lot of times, I think players can be caught off guard when they're traded. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the hope is that when you do acquire someone, you know, that maybe they look at you as a hero, because when you are acquiring a player, in most cases, you're offering them, you know, a different opportunity, maybe a fresh start also. So I think from that standpoint, you know, Teal obviously was a, a huge piece of what happened in New England and in their attack in Arsenal. But I, I think equally as involved as he was there, I think he was really excited about the opportunity to come here and to help grow something. Mm-hmm. You have deep relationships across this league, first and foremost, of course, with Peter Vermes, your former boss in Kansas City. Is there a GM, technical director, that you enjoy working with the most? Any funny stories about some of the interactions that, that, that you can share, of course, with, with those guys as you're hammering out some of these deals? You know, what's interesting, and I, I think it's probably every league, too, like in, like in every sport in our country, you know, where you have, you know, leagues with caps and you have general managers in our sport, you know, called CSOs, chief soccer officers, essentially each team is general manager. Uh, other than a day we play each other, like we all have to kind of work together. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you, I'm most surprised, not most surprised, what maybe is most unique when you hear from general managers or CSOs who come from outside of our country. One of the first things they talk about is that that surprised how collegial like the group is, how people are comfortable working together, comfortable sharing information. You know, the, the reality is, you know, I think it's not like that in most parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't know there's anybody that, that I would say that, that I uh, don't get along with to the point, you know, that I would do a deal with them. I mean, look, I, ironically, I mean, like, uh, you know, the, the one Clay mentioned is probably the hardest one for me to business with, you know. So, I mean, like in some ways, because I think the expectation is when you have someone that you work with who knows you really well, you know, that they're expecting you to, to try to take advantage of that or to, you know, they might know some of the things that are important to you. Uh, you know, come the super draft, uh, you know, sporting Kansas City's CSO was always quick to remind me that it's not the NBA draft. 
people don't look at it the same way. The assets aren't the same, you know, so you know, maybe that, that, that could hurt you sometimes also as well. So. Sure. So let's talk about those acquisitions that we know of now, Teal Bunbury and Ethan Zubak. How do each of them fit into the club? And what's the ceiling you believe each of those players can provide this group next year? So when I start with Teal first, you know, he's obviously he's, uh, more established in a league by what he'd done. You know, not only his collegiate career, obviously, he was an outstanding player at Akron, but, you know, then we had done with then the Kansas City Wizards and Sporting Kansas City and then on to New England. Uh, you know, Teal provides from a tactical standpoint, he has the ability to play all the front three roles, you know, depending on, on how we play. And obviously we've shown a lot of like tactical flexibility. I think that's really important for us. I think good teams do that. And I think in, in some capacity, whether it's a front three or a front four, as far as how Gary utilizes that, you know, Teal can play a variety of roles for us. We look for guys who are versatile and flexible from the standpoint they can play multiple roles in multiple shapes. And he does that. Uh, throughout his career, career, Teal's been somebody who can both create chances and finish chances, which is really important. So I, I think when you look at maybe some of the attacking players who are, are not returning, when you look at the idea of you know us not opting to purchase uh, Yonder Cadiz, when you look at maybe someone like Abu Dhanladi, who's a free agent, you know, having somebody who can play multiple roles up front maybe helps, um, helps replace some of what we had from those guys. And I think from us, our hope is that not only can we replace things that we consciously chose to, to step away from, but you know, maybe, maybe find pieces that are more compatible and make us better. You know, the hope is, you know, we were really proud of what happened this past season, but the hope for us is to keep trying to grow what we're doing with expectation of competing for an MLS Cup. And, you know, having someone like Teal tactically helps us, but also as a person, I think you saw someone like CJ last year. I think you saw in year one, the focus we placed on bringing in like good citizens uh, good guys who can help not only fit in the locker room, but also guys understand the rigors of playing in our league uh, is really important. And I think, you know, Teal fits, you know, whether it's guys like CJ, whether it's guys like Dax or Annabelle, I think he's another guy who's like a really good citizen, makes our group better. Mm-hmm. So as um, you add those pieces, then guys that are con- going to contribute on and off the pitch, would love to look look back a little bit at 2021 and then forward at what, what things can look like this coming year. Uh, when we spoke before the season, you drew a firm line between the club's aspiration, MLS Cup, as is every club's ultimate aspiration, and objectives, those specific benchmarks along the way that, that marked the team's progress and marked them in year two for you. Now that the season's over, can you shed any more light as to what some of those specific benchmarks were? And then what is the process of taking what the club did and probably exceeded most of those benchmarks, I would guess, in year two? And setting those objectives then for year three. Sure. So, you know, we come up with goals and objectives for our club. And then within each of our departments, we try to work with each of the department heads with their specific goals and objectives to try to find out how they can help us achieve our overall club goals. You know, I would say we have eight departments with one of them being like the first team, like the first team coaching staff. Uh, What we found was over the last five years to finish in seventh place, in either the Eastern or Western Conference, you'd average 48-plus points per game. Uh, that ended up proving prophetic when you see what happened this last year where the seventh-place team in the East and West were able to do. Uh, we started our year with the goal of trying to achieve 48-plus points, and we asked the other seven departments was if they can each find a way to get us three points within their department, uh, you're now cutting the work of Gary and coaches in half. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we do a preseason – progress predictor uh, led by our director of strategy analytics, Oliver Miller-Farrell. 
uh, myself and Gary sit down. And once we get the schedule, we go through each match and try to predict how many points we'll get in each match. Uh, you know, I always start off with like every game a tie because I can't <laughs> think of the idea of trying to losing a game. I, I think there's, I think there's uh, something we could say, say about that with how the season turned I, out. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm happy to educate you guys also because I mean, I, I think it's a misconception that I've made, most don't totally understand. Uh, you know, uh, so I start because it's hard to pick your team losing a game. Uh, but I can tell you, like when we drew away to Real Salt Lake, I walked in the locker room fist pumping. And yeah. when Gary was upset because he thought they, they, they could have gotten three points, I turned to him and said, this is the first game we had in our predictor. We actually predicted zero points going in. Hmm. Okay, so it was the first game we had that year where we actually got more points uh, achieved than we predicted. Uh, what I always try to look at in our process, really candidly and transparently, uh, the idea of using analytics, I sent an email to our staff the other day, and, and the synonym for an analytics to me is like being a thoughtful. Uh, I think because of a movie or a book, everyone thinks it's about data and statistics. You know, it's about it's about how you're going to think about things, how you look at things. To me, I'm very pragmatic as far as how we use analytics. Uh, we're card counters in a casino. Uh, I get it. that Some people maybe don't totally understand how a draw can be a win in the road versus a loss at home sometimes. Uh, I can appreciate public perception about some of those things. I have to tell you, I was pretty pragmatic and steadfast about the fact that our goal was getting 48 plus points. And all due respect, I doesn't understand that. I really don't care if someone wanted a win versus a tie. Uh, you know, like in my mind, uh, whatever got us 48 plus points and got us into this Russian roulette version of the NCAA tournament, the MLS playoffs, I was kind of down with getting us 48 plus points. And I, I really wasn't too concerned about what permutation got us there. You know, and, and I think when you see, you know, that we actually got more points than 48, mm -hmm. that we actually averaged more than 1.4 points per game, uh, you know, that we were not only one of the only seven teams in MLS history to be undefeated in home for a full season, but we also had, had the fifth most points in MLS on the road. Uh, mm -hmm. We also had the fourth best road goals against average in the history of the league, not, not this year, in the history of the whole league. I, I think you would say, you know, I always talk about agreeing and understanding being two very different things. You absolutely don't have to agree with what I'm saying. But you have to understand that that plan worked, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, like our goal is to put our coaching staff and players in the best position to acquire 48 plus points, at least this last year. And from that standpoint, mission was accomplished. Tim, I would say we both tend to not only understand what what uh, <laughs> what Mike is saying, but agree as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, from from that perspective, since the the goal was let's get into the playoffs, or the the objectives along the way, and all those sorts of things was let's get into the playoffs in year two. What is it in year three? Is do you are you going to aspire for more than forty eight points, or is it just let's get into the tournament? Let's let's uh, spring an upset in the big dance. Let's take down uh, UVA when we're UMBC. I think it was. <laughs> Well, Tim, look, you know, you, you, you were in the room last week when someone asked mm -hmm. me if we should, you know, if, if our expectations have risen because of what mm -hmm. we've done in our first two years. Uh, I, I think we have to be honest, too. And I, I think it's it's it comes with a territory when you do exceed expectations and you, you do find success in your first and second years of existence. You know, people are mm -hmm. going to expect more. I, I get that. You know, uh, uh, um, you know, what I would say is I think expectations have to be honest. I think they'd be matched with the resources you have. And I think as I mentioned, being analytical, I think you got to be pragmatic and thoughtful about like what that means uh, with us moving to Western conference next year uh, at season end, we would have traveled more distance than any team in MLS history. Mm -hmm. uh, fact, you know, uh, uh, even with the success we've had as a road team in MLS, you know, it's a different set of circumstances when you're asked to travel the, those distances and knowing that when we move into our own, you know, our own stadium at some point this year, 
the reality is like a lot of teams like, you know, Sporting Kansas City in 2011, like DC United, like Portland in years past, you know, like Austin last year, you know, there's going to be a price to pay to start your season without maybe having your own venue. And it's going to be not only a move to the Western Conference, but with probably a, you know, string of road games, you know. So uh, in regards to like our goals this past year, one thing I really appreciate getting a chance to work with someone like Ian Air every day. I mean, look, in, in Ian's previous life as chief executive at Liverpool, I mean, essentially his job there was at our club here, his job here and my job here, you know. So, uh, you know, he'll be the first one to tell you we're pursuing a player. Well, you know, I, I don't know Till Bunbury or I don't know Ethan Zubak as far as watching them play, you know. But uh, what, what I will tell you is, you know, he also, you know, I know because I talked about those deals and I'll mm. say, look, that's what I'm thinking of. And he might say, look, you know, I don't know that player, but. Have you thought about, you know, crafting your trade or deal like this? And, you know, to have somebody who's bought and sold Luis Suarez, bought and sold Coutinho, you know, bought, you know, Firmino, you know, I mean, he's a pretty good reference point to draw from. So I kind of appreciate that. And, you know, what I like about his reference point is, you know, he told me at Liverpool that the goal was never to win the Prem or to win the Champions League. You know, his goal was always kind of to qualify for Europe. If you're qualifying for Europe, then you are top six in the Prem. If you're top six in the Prem, you're probably competing for the Premier League. You know, and you're probably in either Champions League or Europa League, you know. So, uh, you know, whether it's just, you know, continue to throw at you guys, oh, shucks, and happy to be there, you know. Like, uh, mm-hmm. what I would say is, uh, you know, we were in a very small group of teams that have gone to the playoffs each of our first two seasons uh, in existence in MLS. That list gets even smaller for teams that have done it in their first three years. Uh, I think knowing the, the opportunity of having to start out on the road and with the amount of travel we'll have to do being in a Western Conference – I think if we can put ourselves in a position to then be in that one-off Russian roulette NCAA basketball tournament, you know, I mean, look, you guys saw it, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I know it sounds like coach speak and cliche, but I mean, when you get in these one-off games where you could lose in penalties or you can lose with players out with COVID or you can mm-hmm. lose with uh, a referee missing a handball in the box in the 61st minute, you know, like, uh, you know, or you can, you know, you know, you can have bad weather, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those things happen. You know, but, you know, but so to me, I kind of feel like if we can keep putting ourselves in position to get into the, di- the big dance, take our shot at those guys, you know, I, I think, you know, then it's game on. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Ian there, and um, I don't believe I would have to go back and double check. I don't believe he spent Tam to acquire Bobby Firmino. Did you have to give him a crash course in some of the ways that he that the money can and can't be moved around in this league? Because we hear so much about how important experience or at least knowledge of, of the rules is for building a great team. It's uh, it's amazing how challenging the mechanisms are for our league. You know, it's, you know, every league and every sport has their own challenges. Uh, for sure, MLS is the most challenging soccer or football league in the world to, to put a roster mm-hmm. together for, you know. So uh, I think it's encouraging to know through Ian's own body of work and experiences that he was able to understand some insight into that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm sure from his standpoint, I'm, I'm sure – you know, it changes all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, I mean, there, there's challenge in general for all of us, not just him, you know? So as you evaluate now the roster looking forward, you've already addressed, you know, an area where, where this team wanted to, to reinforce a couple of strikers now to, to build the depth chart there. You mentioned obviously with, with Yonder Cadiz heading out. So you do have an open designated player slot. What is the thought process as you evaluate whether to attempt to fill that DP slot in the offseason versus doing what you've done the past couple of years, waiting, evaluating, kind of seeing what the needs are, and then bringing someone in midseason when it might be a little more convenient also for other clubs who are in their offseasons to be able uh, to shed somebody. 
Well, DP spots come with challenges. And, you know, the obvious ones are you can only have three. The reality is I think 60% of our teams in our league have three DPs. So not everyone, not everyone has three DPs. You know, uh, uh, you, you had a Colorado team that was number one seed in the West with, with one, one DP. You had a Philadelphia team that won Supporter Shield two years ago with, I think, one DP. You know, so uh, I don't think it's if you use three DPs, you know, that you're committed to winning or you're, you know, you, know, you, you can win. And if you don't, you don't have that. Uh, for us, I, I think we're going to be careful about how we populate those spots. We're not just going to give it to someone just to do it. You know, the idea of a DP spot is you can pay over and above the max budget charge. So we're not going to be just throw that around. And I think you've seen we've been pretty thoughtful with what we've done. We really had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Hani and Randall in year one. And Randall was able to be brought down to, you know, to a TAM player uh, after coming a young DP. You know, Yonder and subsequently Ake. I mean, you know, if I find most teams tend to use the DPs in specific roles in the field also, uh, you know, for us, I think we'll continue to look at the best way to, to maximize our roster and to think about, you know, you know, what we want to do going forward strategically, how to use that. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about one of your high dollar guys, or, or I guess kind of more broadly, but uh, one of your high dollar guys since Walker Zimmerman, just a couple days ago against Bosnia and Herzegovina scored 40 goals. Can't believe it. Um, I'm, I'm glad we got to experience that before <laughs> recording this podcast, but, but when your guys, um, do go on international duty. How do you view it as a general manager? We asked Gary about this and his primary takeaway was, I pray that they don't come back hurt. Um, how do you view it as a general manager? Do you see it as an opportunity to increase value for a guy who might be moved along down the road? Or do you just kind of watch it as a fan? How do you get a chance to kind of experience that? I mean, truly, first and foremost, the way Gary described it is, I think for every team, you want to make sure that no matter how good your players are, uh, you know, for us, we pride ourselves in making sure that we'll always support federations to let our players represent their countries. You know, uh, last year you had Randall go away in international duty for Olympic qualifying. Uh, you know, that wasn't during a FIFA window. We didn't have to release him. We did that to help Randall, you know, mm-hmm. to represent his country and, and pursue an Olympic spot. So for us, we want them to kind of pursue their dreams. And look at someone like Anibal, who's represented his country over 100 times, and now Captain's Panama. I mean, you know, like any way we can do a thing to do to help them and their families, we want to do that. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, truth be told, I think anyone who says their primary focus is not that these assets go away and come back healthy, you know, they're long. <laughs> I mean, you know, we would not help this summer, you know, with Walker coming back with injury, Anibal coming back with injury. You know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. And you know, I think player values, and you know, are relative. I think people will look on video games and they'll look on websites and try to gauge a player's value. Every club's different when they look for. I mean, the reality is most players' values are going to come at the highest when they're youngest. You know, I think, uh, you know, the potential for growth for that player, when you look at kind of a bell curve in most cases, that and where there are exceptions to the rule, in most cases, your physical skills tend to diminish once you're around age 30. Uh, it is case by case, you know, for sure there are Tom Brady's out there, but the reality is they're far and few between, you know, uh, uh, even though we have guys, you know, who perform exceptionally, look, I mean, someone like Annabelle Godoy is 31 and he runs like he's 21, you know, but the reality is, you know, he's just not the same athletically as he was five years ago, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, you know, I, I do think playing internationally does heighten your profile potentially, you know, uh, I think that, you know, there's some real aspects though, to what would, heighten someone's transfer value to the point is that for a turn for us to sell one of those players. Uh, and it's, it's not a video game. It's not fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is for us to move someone on, 
It's not just trying to do what's best for that new club or that player. It's got to make enough sense for us that we can, you know, have replacement value for the player to help us get better, not just to replace where that person is now. And, you know, for the investment of our owner to make sure there's enough money comes back in return. You haven't yet uh, made any big player sales. Is that something that you see uh, as a future of this club? If, if, you know, you do have the right sort of value that you can get your replacement, that you can maybe make some profit in that regard. Do you see this club being one that is willing to move on players overseas if, if that's uh, what the player wants and if, if the values are right? Because the future of our club is the future of every, every club in our league. Uh, you know, someone referred to almost like a selling league. You know, uh, I think in most cases, every league, if you're good as a selling league, you know, I mean, there are very few leagues in the world. Uh, you know, the Premier League is Syria, you know, where you have the top domestic players stay. You know, mm-hmm. in most cases, you know, your resale value is probably highest abroad. So I think for us, yeah, over time, as we continue to heighten the profile of our players, uh, you know, what I would say, there's not one player we wouldn't explore talking to uh, about, you know, about the idea about selling them. But again, I mean, it's not just essentially to sell someone to do it. Uh, they have to buy into wanting to go. But again, I, you know, there's a primary principle that like it has to be worthwhile for us also. We wouldn't certainly simply just, just give someone away. Just a couple of questions to close out, Mike. And thank you again for spending time with us today. I um, want to first um, ask you a question, I think, because we, we get a lot of comments and questions about, you know, why they do this, why they do that, as any fan base is going to have. What is it that maybe is the biggest misconception about your job? Something you want our listeners to understand about the day in, day out of what you are doing either in season or in the off season to build and maintain this club? I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, um, you know, I mentioned about the, like the half day window and I was being busy on Sunday, you know, every club's different. So I can't tell you how other teams run their organizations. You know, for us, we try to be really proactive in our thought process. And I mean, you know, this time of the year, we've been preparing the last 18 months for it, you know, so where we are, our roster, maybe we're farther along than some because, you know, we've been proactive in looking at when the players' contracts run out. When do we need to renegotiate with current players? What players might come out of contract at a certain time of year that maybe, you know, they might be easier to acquire than others, you know? So, uh, you know, like it was asked earlier about like, you know, when is there a time to kind of catch up or the off season? I mean, you know, I mean, in some ways it gets easier once the season starts because our guys are here. But, you know, all that is is just turn the page to the next year. So, I mean, it's, it's always kind of there's always a player we're chasing. Once, you know, we, we you know, solidify roster spots in 22, you know, we're moving along in plans 23 that don't start now. They started like six months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for us, it's it's trying to get ahead. And I think maybe people don't totally understand is, you know, the, the decisions or moves being made now. Those wheels were in motion several months prior. We'll close with, with one more question to ask you to look back a little bit. You mentioned a great story about walking in, you know, fist bumping in, in the RSL locker room in a moment that many fans might have seen as, you know, a gritty draw and you see as, you know, a victory of sorts, you know, overcoming the expectation. So I'll ask you then to take us back into kind of your private world and, and how you're watching these matches and, and tell us the low point for you this season personally, besides perhaps the, the end of the Philly match and then the high point for you that, that those of us may have not seen on the scoreboard necessarily, but, but that was a highlight for you personally. Wes, I, I, I got asked a couple of times when I first left coaching and went and do what I'm doing now, the difference between coaching maybe being a front office executive. And what I would say is I think the biggest difference is on match day, the analogy I use for what it's like to watch a game is it's like being on a roller coaster. 
you know, we strap in and watch and you get tugged and turned and flipped upside down. And, you know, you just kind of hope when the game ends, you get the desired result you had, because unlike a player or a coach, once it kicks off, I mean, there's absolutely nothing that I can do to affect the outcome of a game. Uh, you know, if anyone thought there was an earpiece that I had to Gary during the game, <laughs> that doesn't exist. Uh, uh, I would tell you, as, as a former coach myself, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't want to work with, you know, an athletic director or a general manager micromanaging what I'm doing with decisions. So I think that's hard. It's hard to sit and watch. And, you know, you hope that the the puzzle pieces you put together, the chess pieces you put together and you give to your coaching staff and they can achieve whatever the, the, the game plan is, you know, on that day, uh, you know, biggest disappointment, you know, uh, you know, what I would say is, I mean, I think that some of these games you mentioned, you know, these predictors, you, we talk about Salt Lake from the standpoint that getting points, maybe we didn't predict any, um, you know, I, I think the hardest ones are the ones where you predicted to get points and didn't get, the, you know, didn't get the ones you had. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, away to Miami was was for sure the toughest one. What I find because of our fan base, uh, and and I hope everyone appreciates too. I mean, like uh, I love the idea of being somewhere where people believe our team should win and wants our team to achieve. Because uh, uh, I'm that way, so I want our fans to be that way as well. You know. Uh, you know, I think the challenge of playing teams like Miami or Cincinnati because of proximity from Cincinnati, because of coming into, you know, the league as an expansion Miami will always be tied to those clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the challenge that we have for a very young team is maybe those are the teams for the first time in our club's uh, inception that you know, we're, we're supposed to beat those teams. You know, so I think sometimes we take for granted how hard it is to win the road. I think the series of circumstances of how we lost to Miami, that was absolutely a gut punch. You know, uh, uh, mentioned about the roller coaster goes during a game. In most cases, when we lose, I'm disappointed. When we win, my first thought is usually like, thank God we didn't lose. You know, uh, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I was like really happy after a win. And it's not because I don't appreciate winning, but I do appreciate how hard it is to win. I'm usually more relieved after a win than I am like happy. You know, so I think uh, as much as a disappointment or a gut punch, maybe the Miami loss was early in the year. I think that maybe some of these games you look at the maybe that we shouldn't have won, you know, uh, talk about expectations for our team. I mean, the reality is, you know, we, we shouldn't have been joint second in the Eastern conference. You know, <laughs> not me look at what we spend, not me look at how new our club is. I mean, you know, but, but that's the truth though. You know I mean? Like it doesn't mean that we don't believe we can win those games. We haven't played one team this year where I didn't believe we couldn't beat them, you know? Uh, but I would say on paper, you know, maybe we probably shouldn't have. You know, mm-hmm. uh, look, New England's a record this year for supporter shields, and we're the only team in Eastern Conference that didn't lose them this year. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, beating New England this year, that was awesome. Awesome. You know, uh, at a time in, in, our, in our season where we had three three ties to start our season, uh, some of those being games, in the case, all of them being games, or maybe maybe because we could get three points in each of those. So I, I don't know that I would say it was a must-win game at that point, but I think for us, you know, the season could have gone a couple different ways. So for us to get the result we did was great. And, uh, you know, I, I look at some of the exciting moments. I mean, you know, the end of that Toronto game, you know, uh, you know how that game went, it was surreal to think how that game finished. Yeah. Uh, the second half of Cincinnati away, you know, because of how that match went, you know, it was a calamitous, the disaster that game started. And to have that kind of explosion, I mean, I, I would tell you, both those were games, I think, where I walked away probably more relieved than excited, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think there, you know, there are probably too many of those like really proud moments, like let's say like a proud parent to see us kind of grow into what that we we're going to do. Uh, you know, maybe my proudest. You know, I mean, 
I don't know, you know, the, the, the playoff win, you know, uh, Orlando was a rival for us this season. You know, we had three games or absolute bears against them, you know, to, to have them come here with so much on the line where I try to, to keep very nondescript and we talk about like under promising, maybe over delivering, you know, the idea of being the first team in MLS history to win playoff games each year, first two years. Uh, I didn't need to be told or reminded that, like I knew that going to that game. You know, like the idea of like us etching our name in the history books, uh, I, I think was pretty special. And it's something that now I think all the expansion teams going forward will be compared to. Well, thank you, Mike, for wrapping a special season with us. Congratulations on uh, on the job you played in that success and best wishes moving forward into year three of Major League Soccer. You're always very generous with your time and we appreciate catching up with you. Thanks, guys. And folks, we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to this standalone episode interview with Mike Jacobs. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>